uh, Hebrews chapter four. I have been absolutely stuck on this uh, topic lately. Um, you know, men have been preaching on Jesus for many of years. And I'm going to tell you, there has not been one man that has exhausted the topic. Uh, they're going to preach about Jesus until Jesus returns. And I'm going to tell you, they're not even scratching the surface. Uh, what we're going to do this evening is preach. I'm going to preach on Jesus from a very uh, specific viewpoint about Christ being our high priest. And then we'll connect that into the next uh, service as well. So Hebrews chapter four, if you're there, would you say amen? We're going to begin reading in verse number 14. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our professions. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So our topic is going to come directly from verse number 14. We have a great high priest. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that we have to be here in your house uh, this evening. And God, I know that you told us in your word that we're two or three gathered in your name. There you are in the midst. So, Lord, there's no doubt in my mind that you're here this evening. But, Father, I pray that you help us not to just uh, rejoice that we were able just to meet together. But may we leave here rejoicing that we were able to meet with you. And, God, not, not saying that we've heard a message from Brother Ed or that we just fellowship with one another. But, God, we truly do need to hear a word from you. So, Father, I pray just help me now as I preach your word. God, I pray that you place your hand upon me. As I preach this evening, God, I pray you help me not to say anything that does not need to be said. And God, at the same time, I pray you help me not to leave out what you would have me to say. And God, I pray you help me to be controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit, even while I'm speaking this evening. God, maybe some things that I may not have studied, some things that I may not have read or may not have come to my mind or to my heart. But God, I pray that I'll be led by your Holy Spirit in the very moment of me preaching. God, I thank you once again for safety and getting us here safely. And you know, God, your protective hand. And God, I pray you just continue to keep your hand upon us and upon the young people as they're meeting upstairs as well. I pray you continue to meet with them and be with my family, uh, my wife and my two girls as I'm away. Keep your hand upon them. In your precious name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. There is much debate about who the human penman is of the book of Hebrews. There is some that say that it is Luke. There are some that say it is Apollos. There are some that say that it is a man by the name of Clement or some even say that it is Barnabas. But one of the most common who, uh, names that is mentioned in regards to who the human penman is of the book of Hebrews is the Apostle Paul. Now, I personally believe that the book of Hebrews is one of the 13 epistles that was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, when you read throughout the book of Hebrews, it's 13 chapters. You will not see the Apostle Paul's name mentioned one time in the entire book. But though you do not see the Apostle Paul's signature, we certainly do see his salutation. Now, in books that we know the Apostle Paul wrote, books like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First uh, and Second Corinthians, we know for sure that the Apostle Paul wrote those books. He will use statements such as this. In Galatians, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In Ephesians, he said, grace be with you all that love our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In Philippians, he said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In Colossians, he said, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you. Amen. And then he says in verse in first and second Thessalonians, he says, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, I think you get the point a little bit. If you were to look at the very last verse of the book of Hebrews, it says grace to you all. Amen. So we may not see his signature, but we do see the same salutation that he used in the other epistles that we know the Apostle Paul most certainly did. Right now, regardless if 
you may believe that it was Paul or you may believe that it was Barnabas or another person believes that it was Clement or, or, or Apollos. Regardless, we can all disagree on who the human penman may be of the book of Hebrews. But we must all agree that the Bible is ultimately the word of God. Right. That is something that we cannot forget when we're reading the Bible. We, it's not just the words of Moses. It's not just the words of David. It's not just the words of Paul. It is ultimately the word of God. The Bible says in First um, Timothy, the uh, Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy and he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That, that word inspiration, it comes from the same word as respiration, literally meaning that God breathed. So look, we can debate all day long about who wrote the book of Hebrews, but ultimately we know that the Bible, it is the word of God. Look, I don't think it's a coincidence if you were to look over in Hebrews chapter number one and verse number one, the Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake. Then it says again in verse number two, it says, hath in these last days spoken. So look, everyone's saying, is it Paul? Is it Barnabas? Is it Clement? But in the very first two verses, we learn that it is God that is the one that's speaking. So always nail it down in your mind and in your heart that when you're opening up your Bibles, you're not reading the words of man. You are reading the words of God. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Hebrews to the Jews to help them help them in their transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's helping them in their transition from the law to grace. See, the law was not a bad thing, but it most certainly was not the best thing. See, the law showed us all our need for grace. See, the law says all men are guilty. But when the Lord came in, he's introducing grace. Look, for the wages of sin is death. That's what the law says. But this is what the Lord says. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the law says here you are guilty. But the Lord says here is grace. So the Jews, they're struggling in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Look now, Jesus has come He's died. He's he's been buried. He's now risen again. And now that he's risen again, you're now telling us that the things that we did in the Old Testament are now no more. Look now, no more, no more sacraments, no more ceremonies, no more, no more rituals. Look, we have been doing this for fifteen hundred years. Jesus dies. He's buried and he rises again. And you just say, stop. So so the Jews are looking like, OK, now if we're going to stop, what do we do with all of this? I imagine there was someone sitting there thinking, my son is next in line to be the high priest of Israel, and now you're telling me to stop? It could have been a man sitting there ironing his priestly garment. He said, you're telling me I don't need this thing anymore? He's like, now, what do we do now? So look now, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Jews to prove to them this one statement, that Christ is better. He's writing this whole epistle to the Jews to prove to them that Christ is is better. Look, it says anything that you had before Christ, now that you are in Christ, you have to remember that Christ is better. Look now, the Jews were like many believers today. They knew what God did in the past. They knew what was what God was going to do in the future, but they could not see what God was doing in the present. They knew what God did in the past. They can tell you about all the sacraments, all the ceremonies, all the laws, all the pictures and the types of Christ. They can tell you about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can tell you about everything in the past. They can tell you that one day a Messiah is going to come. They can tell you about everything in the future. But when Christ was looking at them in the face in the present, they missed what God was doing. 
Look now, I, I praise God for things that God did in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. But let me just tell you, God's not done working. And sometimes we get so stuck on the past that we miss what God is doing right now in the present. So the Jew, the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Jews to stress to them over and over again, you'll see this word, better, 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 that Christ is better. So he'll take things that they hold to a very high esteem and compare it to Christ and show them how Christ not only fulfills those offices, but he exceeds those offices. He'll show he'll show that he's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than the kings. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the angels. He'll prove to them that Christ is better. Now, how many of you like grammar? You're grammar junkie. Me either. Just one person. right? I expected that. All right. I don't like it either. But when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Jews, he is using what grammar junkies call a superlative comparison. Look, a the purpose of a superlative comparison is really not to compare. The purpose of a superlative comparison is to show you that nothing can compare. Look, the purpose of a superlative comparison is not really to show you which one is better. The purpose of a superlative comparison is to show you which one is best. For, for example... I, before I had one leg, all right, I enjoyed playing basketball. And sometimes I, I enjoy watching basketball, my favorite sport to watch. And you may sit there and watch a game for 40 minutes or for 48 minutes. And out of all the minutes that they play, the game comes down to a buzzer beater shot. You ever seen a game like that? You ever seen a football game? It comes down to the last few seconds and somebody wins. They kick the ball and the, the clock expires while the ball is in the air. It hits the goalpost and it bounces over, right? Look, there is literally somebody out there that won a gold medal in an Olympic race because they did this. <laughs> right? They got so close to the end, it was such a close race that they stuck their head out and they got a gold medal. So look now, when the Apostle Paul is comparing Jesus to things that the Jews hold to a very high esteem, Jesus is not doing this. Look, it's not a close comparison. It's not a close race. It's not a close match. It's not a close game. Look, when you compare Jesus to anything, it's a blowout. It's not even close. And here's the reason why. Because he is not just better. As you read in Hebrews, he is so much better. Look, you got to nail this down in your mind and your heart. Anything that you had before Christ, now that you are in Christ, he's better. Look, he's better than the drugs. He's better than the alcohol. He's better than the lifestyle of immorality. He's better than the negative friends and the bad influence. Now that you are in Christ, what you have in him is so much better. So he's writing this to stress this to the Jews over and over again that in Christ you have it better. Let me give you a couple of examples, all right? And some of y'all looking at me like I'm crazy up here, and I don't think it's because of my one leg, all right? Think about the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophet's job was to reveal the word of God to the people, right? When Jesus came into this world, he came into this world as a prophet. But look now, he was not just revealing the word to the people. He literally was the word. John said it like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Say, so why did he come in as a prophet revealing the word and, and he is the word? You know why? He's so much better. When he came in as a king, the king's job was to rule and reign before the people. Well, Jesus said oftentimes throughout his earthly ministry that my kingdom is not of this world. Look, he didn't come to rule over a land. He came to rule over lives. Look, that's why kings look at our God and say, that's my king. That's why we refer to him as the king of kings, because he's so much better. We look at the priest. 
which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. The priest's job was to represent the people before God. Jesus wasn't just representing the people before God. He was God. As we'll read in just here a little bit, the priest would have to go in and make a sacrifice for their own sins. And then the priest would have to go in and make a sacrifice for the people's sins. But when Jesus came to earth, he had no sin, so he made no sacrifice for his own sins. He only came to make a sacrifice for our sins. You know why? When you compare him to the other priest, he's so much better. So we think about those three offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, right? Who can tell me what the Godhead is or the Trinity? We call it the Trinity, but the Bible says the Godhead. What is it? Talk to me. I don't have a candy bar to throw to you, but you can still talk to me, right? He said, there's some in there, I might take some for myself. <laughs> but what is the Trinity of the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that we always say it in that order? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Very, very rarely do we say, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son. <laughs> it sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Very, very, very rarely do we say, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son. Almost every time when we refer to the Godhead or the Trinity, we say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, whether we do it knowingly or not, this is the natural progression of how we see God revealing himself to us. In the Old Testament, we see God the Father, right? In the Gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see God the Son, Jesus. And then in the book of Acts forward in the church age, what we're living in today, we now see the Holy Spirit. Now, we can do the exact same thing with those three offices, all right? Prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus came into this world, he came into this world as a prophet. When he will return to this world during the millennial reign, he will return as a king. Look, everyone that mocked them and everyone that ridiculed them and everyone that, that talked bad about them, the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day everyone will bow down and acknowledge him as king. But look now, we know what he did. He came as a prophet. We know what he will do. He'll return as a king. But the question is, what is Christ doing right now? I want to tell you right now that Christ, he is fulfilling the office of our high priest. The Bible says that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And I want to tell you this evening that if you are a child of God, if you're saved, if you know for sure that heaven is your home in Christ, you have a great high priest. Look, he is every day representing you before the throne of God. What a great gift we have in Christ. You, you know why that's so amazing? Because every day we have an adversary in the devil. You know, every day the devil is accusing believers to God. We'll talk about it in the next session when we look at the life of Job. Every day accusing believers to God. But every day as we have an adversary, we also have an advocate in Christ. And every day he is interceding on our behalf. In Christ, we truly do have a great high priest. Look, it is so easy to not fully understand what you have when you're in it. As, as young adults, don't be fooled by the world thinking that they have something better. Oh, no, 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 no. If you are in Christ, you're in the best thing this world has to offer. Look, you have something that the world cannot offer. You're in him. I remember um, my wife. I think some of you may have met her before. Let me think. No, she's never been here with me, actually. My wife, she's born and raised in Nassau, Bahamas, all right? Born and raised in Nassau, Bahamas. I call her every, all the time. She's my Bahama mama, all right? Born and raised. 
They knew those guys. They make fun. They knew I was about to say that. Huh? But I call her my Bahama mama, born and raised. And we were there in Bahamas visiting her family. And uh, my nephew, who at the time, he was probably two years old at the time. And over and over again, he kept saying this. I want to go on a boat. I want to go on a boat. Now, y'all are not kids. All right. Y'all are young adults. Right. So maybe by now you've realized that grandparents always treat the grandbaby better than they treat the kids. Right. They just get whatever they want. Right. They tell you, no, I ain't got no McDonald's money. But as soon as the grandbabies come, now all of a sudden they got McDonald's money. Right. <laughs> so so my nephew kept saying, I want to go on a boat. And then all, all of a sudden, of course, his grandfather gave him what he wanted. And we went out on this boat. Now, it was not a small boat. It, it was I would call it a yacht. All right. It had bedrooms in it. It had a dining room in it. It was a it was a pretty big it was a pretty big boat. Would you believe this boy went on that top deck? And as we were going coming out of the harbor, there was a fisherman's boat. I'm talking about a small boat to where if one guy had an extra Twinkie, something bad could happen. I mean, it was a small boat. Right? Would you believe this boy looks over? While he's on a yacht. And this is what he says. Ooh, a boat. And I'm thinking, you've been begging to go on a boat. You're on this big yacht. And now you are wowed and impressed by a little fisherman's boat. This is what the Jews are doing. Jesus, have, he's come. He's died. He's been buried. They are now living in Christ. And still they're saying, ooh, the law. <laughs> They're saying, ooh, angels. They're saying, ooh, Moses, ooh. And it's almost like Paul is saying, hey, wake up. You are in Christ. You're in something that is better than what you're impressed by. May God help us, not just you, but me also, to never lose focus that when we are in Christ, we are in something that is better than anything this world has to offer. And when you are in him, he is representing you as your great high priest. Now, these guys right here, they've been traveling with me for a little while. And one one problem with that is that they try to put me on a timer. Some of y'all would say amen to that, but I ain't paying them no mind. All right. So let's look at Christ. He's a worthy high priest. Christ is a worthy high priest. All right. Now, y'all are young adults, so we're going to go a little bit deeper with y'all than I normally go with teenagers. All right. All right. So Christ is a worthy high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, the priesthood is centered around Aaron and the Levitical tribe. All right. Look, you did not choose to be a high priest. You were chosen to be a high priest. You could not go into the temple or the tabernacle and say, hey, man, I'm looking for an application to be a high priest. All right? You didn't you didn't you didn't email your resume to indeed trying to find a position to be a high priest. All right. Look, if you were going to be a high priest over the nation of Israel, you had to come from the Levitical tribe or from the lineage of Aaron. Now, when you look at Matthew chapter number one. And you trace the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is traced all the way back to David. David was a king. So the kings came from Judah and the priests came from the Levitical tribe. So you can see the conflict that the Jews are having here. How can one man claim kingship and priesthood and he can only come from one tribe? It's a, it's a legitimate argument, isn't it? So we're going to look at how in the world is Christ a worthy high priest? Well, first of all, Christ is a worthy high priest because he has a connection. What does he have a connection with? He has a connection with God. Look down in our verse in verse number 14, Hebrews chapter four. You still with me? If you're still with me, say amen. If you're not, say amen. I got you. (laughs) 1 
Verse number 14. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest. He said, you ain't get me. <laughs> he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passing to the heavens. Look at this now. Jesus, the son of who? God. It did not say Jesus, the son of Aaron. It didn't say Jesus, the son of David. It did not say Jesus, the son of Moses. It said he is Jesus, the son of God. Look, even today in 2023, there are some people who gain access to certain things because of who their father is. Are we right about it? Now, you say, how in the world is Jesus a worthy high priest? You better look at who his daddy is. He is Jesus, the son of God. He has he's a worthy high priest because he has a connection with God. But not only that, he also has a connection with man. Look at what it says in the next verse in verse 15. It says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. But then the Bible says, yet without sin. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying here? He, he's basically saying your high priest, though he is a great high priest. Look now, though he came from heaven down to this earth, though he's 100 percent God, that does not mean he is out of touch with me. So why is he a worthy high priest? Look. He has a connection with man and he is a God that can be touched. He says, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Look now, if you are a child of God on your way to heaven, you know for sure that heaven is your home. You have a great high priest in Christ. You know what that means? He feels what you feel. Now, there are times where some people go through trials and some people go through difficult times and somebody may come to you and say, I know exactly how you feel. Look, they mean well, but let me tell you now, that's a big lie. Because <laughs> look now, we can go through the exact same trial. We can go through the exact same thing. But just because we went through the same thing doesn't mean we feel the same thing. That, I, that doesn't mean I know how you feel. It can affect, affect you in a way that it did not affect me and vice versa. But look now, there is never a child of God that can ever go through a trial or through a hard time that can say this statement. No one knows how I feel. Oh, that's far from true. Look, if you are saved in Christ, you have a great high priest. You know what that means? He can be touched. Look, when you feel something, he feels it. Look, he doesn't just know what you're going through. He knows how you feel when you're going through it. Only Christ can do that. Remember the story of Lazarus? That that story, I mean, I may have a weird sense of humor, but sometimes I read things in the Bible. I'm like, man, this is crazy. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, he whom thou lovest, your friend, Lazarus, he's sick. Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but that the son might be glorified thereby. And a few verses later, Jesus says this. The Bible literally says it just like this. Then said Jesus plainly unto them, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. You ever read something had to go back and see if you missed the name or change speakers? You didn't know. I had to go back and say, Wait a minute. You said this sickness is not unto death. Then you say Lazarus is dead. And then it says this. And I am glad. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> Say, what in the world is going on here? Look, Jesus knew that Lazarus dying was not the end result. He knew that he was going to raise him up again. He said, this sickness is not unto death. Why is it? What is the reason or the purpose for him dying? That the son might be glorified thereby. And when you look at the end of the chapter, the Bible says many believed on Jesus because of him. Who? Lazarus. He got his glory. So we must ask the question, if he knew that the end result of Lazarus dying was not death, then why in the chapter do we read Jesus wept? Wait a minute. He told us at the beginning of the chapter, the sickness is not unto death. Well, if you know that he's not going to stay dead, if you know that you're going to raise him again, then why are you over there crying? You know what happened? He looked over there at Mary 
He looked over there at Martha. And the Bible says they went away and they wept bitterly. And after that, the Bible says, then Jesus groaned in his spirit. And then the Bible says Jesus wept. You know why Jesus wept when Lazarus died? He wept because they wept. You know what happened? He was touched. Look, going into your, some of you into your young adult years very early on right now, you're going to go through some things in life that are difficult. Never feel like you're going through them alone. If you are a child of God, you have a great high priest. And when you are touched, so is he. He was a, has a connection with man because he can be touched. Not only that, he was tempted. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Then it says this, yet without sin. Now let's take a time out commercial break right here, all right? Now I'm not going to finish this. I already, I'm already feeling it. I'm not going to finish it. But time out commercial break. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points such as we are. We got to deal with that. Because Jesus did not have the internet... How can the Bible say that he was tempted in all points such as we are? He didn't have an Instagram account. He didn't have a Snapchat. I'm old school. He didn't have a Facebook or a MySpace if we want to go way back. <laughs> Some of you are like, what is my thing? Right. Forget it. Forget I even said that. Y'all going to like try to age me or something, right? But he didn't have access. How can the Bible say that he was tempted like we are, but he did not have access to things that we have access to? Is the Bible just making things up? No, of course not. Listen. All sin falls underneath one of three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look, the lust of the flesh is when you're designed to do something that God said you cannot do. The lust of the eyes is when you're designed to have something that God said you cannot have. And the pride of life is when you're designed to be someone that God said you cannot be. If you were to compare that to Matthew chapter number four, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he's been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. What does the devil say? Turn these stones into bread. Lust of the flesh. He takes them up into the mountain. He says, if you bow down and worship me, everything that you see, you can have the lust of the eyes. He says, cast yourself down off of this mountain. Let the angels save you. Pride of life. Look, when the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points such as we are, yet without sin. Look, it's not making things up. He was tempted with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Look, you say, brother, how in the world do I know that I can live a holy life in a wicked world. You ready? Because Jesus did. So how do you know that I can be tempted with sin and not sin? You know how? Jesus did. Look, Jesus showed us that it was possible for a man, woman, boy, or girl to walk through this sinful, wicked world and not be tainted by the wicked world. He showed us it's possible to live a holy life. He has a connection. Not only does he have a connection, I'll give you these two quickly. Look at his calling. Chapter five, verse number 10. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. It says called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look, let's just use basic reasoning. All right. Jesus was not a worthy high priest because he came from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus was a worthy high priest because the same God that called Aaron called him. Amen. Say you say, look, look, just think about this for a second. If you had to come from the lineage of Aaron to be a high priest of Israel, then how was Aaron able to be a high priest? Ah, I got you there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He was called. He was called. So the same God that called Aaron called Jesus, so that qualified him to be the high priest of Israel. All right? So we see that he was a worthy high priest because of his calling, because of his connection, because of his consecration. That's in chapter 7. This is what I was telling you about earlier, verse 27. 
who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. This is what he's saying. Christ came into this world and he walked this earth and he had no sin. So when he went in as a high priest to make a sacrifice, he didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sin because he had none. The only reason he was going to sacrifice was for our sins. And he wasn't coming in with the lamb, a bull or a goat. He was coming in, the Bible says, with his own blood, with his own body, offering up himself for us. So Christ is a worthy high priest. Now, let's examine Christ's work as a high priest. His work as a high priest. Just think with me for a second. Think over the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Do we ever see Jesus as a high priest doing any of the duties of the high priest of the Old Testament? Do we ever see him getting the altar ready? Do we ever see him prepping the laver? Do we ever see him getting the table of showbread? Do we ever see him lighting the candles? Look, think about this now. Do we ever see the man that was most qualified to go beyond the veil into the holiest of all? What a sight that would have been, huh? Jesus, the man that was most qualified to go into the very presence of God. We read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We never see him do it. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus was not coming to do what another man could do. Jesus was coming to do what only he could do. Look, Jesus did not do what the priest of the Old Testament did. But the priest of the Old Testament could not do what Jesus did. He was coming to do what only he could do. Let's examine a few things that he had a better sanctuary. Look at chapter nine, chapter nine. I'm going to speed up a little bit here. Verse number 11. But Christ being once in a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, as it is to say, that is to say, not of this building. This is what he's saying. Christ as our high priest, his sanctuary is literally out of this world. Amen. <laughs> this is what he's saying. He says, hey. In Christ, you have something better. Look, he he has a better sanctuary. He's not going into the temple. He's not going into the tabernacle. He's not going into the beyond the veil. He's saying, look, his sanctuary where he resides is literally out of this world. Did you catch it in the verse we read in chapter four, verse 14? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Now think the priest of the Old Testament, when they went beyond that veil, into the holiest of all, that's the kind of glory. You know, history tells us that men held that to such a high esteem that they would tie bells and ropes to that man's ankles. So if that man went into the presence of God unfit, that man would drop dead. Look, they took it so serious. They said, we ain't going to go get his body. We're going to drag that boy out. <laughs> they took it that serious. Now, imagine how, how it must have felt to go beyond that veil into the presence of God and then come out. It's almost like God is putting a stamp of approval on a man, isn't it? Now, now think about this. It's saying our high priest, you thought that was great that a man went in and came out. No, no, no. When you're looking for our high priest sanctuary, he said, don't look down here. Uh-uh. Look up there. Our great high priest, he has passed into the heavens. Look, what I'm trying to stress to you is that in Christ, you have it better. We have it better. Let me give you just a few. I'm going to go quickly. He had a better sanctuary. He gave us. He offered a better sacrifice. He gave us salvation. Let's look at that sacrifice in chapter nine. Chapter nine. This always wows me. Chapter nine and verse number 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the soul of the flesh, 
How much more? Does it sound familiar? So much better. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look, he said, what was Christ's better sacrifice? He didn't come in with a bull, a goat, a lamb, a calf. He came in with his own blood and made a sacrifice for us. See, when you look at that lamb that goes throughout the entire Bible, really, when we see pictures and types of Christ, and we could really spend a whole session on this, but we're not. But think about the progression that we see throughout the word of God. In Genesis, remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. God says, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to kill an animal. And then that blood is going to cover you. So from Genesis, we see it was one lamb for one man. And then we get over into Exodus. Exodus on the um, Passover day, right? God says, I want you to take a lamb, kill that lamb, take the blood, put it over the doorpost. And he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you see the progression? It was one lamb for one man in Genesis. Then in Exodus, it was one lamb for one household. Then in Leviticus, the high priest of Israel will go in on atonement day and make one sacrifice for the whole nation. You see that? One lamb for one man. One lamb for one household. One lamb for one nation. Now, let me tell you what Jesus did. John said he was preaching and he just stopped and said, behold, the lamb of God was taken away the sins. Look now, not of one man, not of one household, not of one nation, but the sins of the whole world. Look, the sacrifice that Jesus made, it was not made for one race. It wasn't made for one nation. It wasn't made for one individual. The sacrifice that he made was for the entire world. He offered a better sacrifice. Look, his sacrifice was so great that it fully satisfied the wrath of God. Think about that. The sacrifice that Christ made fully satisfied the wrath of God. Look, high priests of the Old Testament, they would make a sacrifice. Guess what they'll do next? Start preparing the next one. (laughs) Make a sacrifice. Start preparing the next one. 1,500 years they made sacrifice. We can't even count how many rams died. Can't even count how many lambs died. But Jesus came in and look what the Bible says in chapter 10, verse number 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's a bad man right there. Did y'all catch that? Fifteen hundred years they were making sacrifices. Jesus came in. He made one sacrifice. This is what he did. He sat down. That's what he did. He made one sacrifice. Look, let me just say you, he's not sitting down because he's tired. God created this whole world in six days and he rested on the seventh. He ain't rest because he was wore out from making the moon. He, he rested because his work was finished. You know, when he sat down, he cried on the cross. It is finished. God's wrath was fully satisfied. You know, one of my favorite verses found in Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 17. The Bible says in their sins. And iniquities will I remember no more. Think about that. God is what we call omniscient. That means God knows everything. You say, how great was the sacrifice that Jesus made? His sacrifice was so great that it made an omniscient God forget. You figure that one out. <laughs> Look, so now when God looks at you, He's not looking at you as being covered in sin. He's looking at you as being covered in the blood of Jesus. He says your sins are now as far as the east is from the west. They're in the depths of the sea. 
And when you are in Christ, the Bible says your sins and your iniquities will he remember no more. He says, what sins? I don't remember them. That's how great the sacrifice of Christ was. Now, if you're dependent on your own works, you're in trouble. If you depend on your own sacrifice, you're in trouble. If you depended on something that your mama did for you, you're in trouble. But if you're dependent on what Christ did for you, you're good. You're covered because in him we have a great high priest. Now, let's put the landing gear down. All right. Christ is a worthy high priest. Christ worked as a high priest. But then the wealth of Christ being our high priest. What what do we gain with him being our high priest? Well, he offered us an eternal sacrifice. He gave us an entrance that is special and it'll help us encourage the saints. Look down in chapter number 10 again. Oh, so much here. Look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he have consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. Remember what I told you about that man that went in, had the bells and ropes tied to his ankles? Men used to go in and tiptoeing into the presence of God, scared that they were going to drop dead. God says by a new and living way which he had consecrated for us. It says through the veil that is to say his flesh. You remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? After he gave up the ghost, what happened in the temple? The veil was ripped in twain. Look, from top to bottom, from from God all the way down to man, the veil was rent. Look, it was rent, but it was not removed. You know what the death of Jesus did? It gave us all full access into the very presence of God. The Bible says the veil was his flesh. So look now. When they were putting nails in his hands, it was tearing the veil. When they put the spear in his side, it was tearing the veil. When they were plucking his beard, it was tearing the veil. Nails in his feet, it was saying that when he was dying, it was giving us full access into the very presence of Almighty God. So look, this is what he says now. He says, look, don't come in here tiptoeing. No, take the bells and the ropes off your ankles. He says, you come into my presence and you come in with boldness. Why do we have boldness? Because of the blood of Jesus. Listen to me. If you are a child of God, you being in the presence of God is where you're supposed to be. If you are a child of God, you being in the presence of God, it's where you are supposed to be. Look, may God help us as believers to go exactly where God said we can go. Take full advantage of Christ being our high priest and enter into his presence. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you knew you were in the presence of God? Has there ever been a time in your life where you knew God's speaking to me right now? Has there ever been a time in your life where you got that on your knees and you knew God's hearing me right now? When was the last time in your life you were in the presence of God and you knew it? Look, if you were in a child of God, Christ is your great high priest and he gives you full access into the presence of almighty God. I'll close. I'll close with this story. My oldest daughter, her name is Eliana, right? And at the time of this story, she was about two, a little over two. And we have a child care center in central Arkansas, and we were helping a family get some paperwork going. And they had another girl that was about the same age as my daughter. So they're running around the office playing tag, doing all this stuff, right? Now, there is something in kids, even the bad ones, right? <laughs> Now, if you're one of those people that say, I don't believe that any kids are bad, 
Come to North Little Rock, Arkansas, and I'll introduce you to a few of them. So even the bad ones, they know when they are in a place that they should not be. Now, my daughter, Eliana, she runs all over that building. Now, she's in the kitchen, she's in the pantry, and she's in places where it says no children beyond this point. She go right through there. So they're running around in the main office where we have like the, where people do paperwork and things. And my office is connected to that. So they're playing tag and Ellie runs right into my office. And the other girl, she gets to the door of my office and she just stops. She doesn't go in. And she just leans past the door a little bit, just kind of looks. And I I was watching to see what she was going to do. And my daughter looked at her and this is what she said. She said, this way. She said, this way. Now, keep this story in mind now. Because my daughter, Eliana, she's my daughter, right? That means she's very comfortable in my office. She go all over that place. But that other girl, she wasn't my daughter. She wasn't comfortable coming beyond that door out in a room where her mother was not. Look, this is exactly what Christ did for us. There is something inside of every man that knows a sinful man does not have the right to be in the presence of a holy God. After Adam and Eve sinned, they had been in God's presence for God knows how long they've been in his presence. The moment that they sin, God shows up and they hide themselves. They know I'm now in sin. I don't have the right to stand before God. But can I tell you, in our high priest, the very son of God, he's very comfortable being in his father's presence. He looks at us all as we're standing here and he says this, this way, this way. Look, if you are a child of God, you can go into the presence of God because you have a relationship with his son and he is representing us before him. Now, when that happens, I encourage you to finish reading Hebrews chapter number 10. When that happens, we may talk about this in the morning. All right. But when that happens, it is now equipping you to serve and help someone else. You cannot serve and help someone else until God has first done a work in your heart. You can't aid somebody else coming into God's presence until you've first been in his presence. I don't I don't think it's a coincidence that in the same chapter where it says, that we can now come into his presence with great boldness. It says this, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, even so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, there is nothing new under the sun, is it? You know, there are still churches right now that are still recovering from the pandemic. Because people have figured out, well, if I can meet with God at home, why I got to go to church? I can watch it on the TV. I ain't even got to get dressed for church. I can watch it on the TV, right? Here's the thing. You can meet with God at your house, right? But you can't help nobody at your house. And the more you get into God's presence, the more you realize it's not just about me. It's about someone else. And it'll help. This this will help you in your Christian life when you start looking. Look now, not for what you can get, but for what you can give. It, it'll help you from being devastated. Somebody says, oh, my goodness, the preacher ain't preaching good service. It, it was born. It was it was dead. It was dry. I got to find another church to go to. You know why? Because you ain't learned how to meet with God yourself. If I was only eating one time a week and that one time was nasty, I'd be mad, too. <laughs> but look now, when you learn how to eat at the house, you're not just coming to church just to get something. You're now coming to church to see who you can help and be a blessing to. That can only happen when you truly take full advantage of Christ being your high priest. If you are a child of God in Christ, you have a high priest. And look now, not just a high priest because the Jews already have that. No, 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 no. In him, you have a great high priest. Let's close right here.
I know it's the second time I'm saying that, but I mean it this time. In Christ, we have such a great high priest. Say, how great is he? We'll never need another one. He's so great that we'll never need another one. In Christ, we have a great high priest. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I know that we covered a lot of ground this evening. But Father, I trust that something that was said from your word was a blessing, a help or encouragement to the young adults here this evening. God, just to get a good glimpse and a fresh look at you. God, I trust that you'll help us to never get over our salvation, never get over what you mean to us in this Christian life. God, it's so easy to get complacent and just go through the motions, go to the routine of going to church and repeating over and over again each week. But God, help us as believers to fully enter into your presence. And God, when that happens, may we look to help and encourage and be a blessing to other people. We thank you for what you've done for us on Calvary, on the cross. And God, what you mean to us as our high priest, help us for these next moments of fellowship. The next service as well be with the young people. And we give you all the praise and all the honor for it. In your precious name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen.